tuning into Small Big Wings, a window to the world of young, ambitious problem solvers. They are makers, designers, builders, hackers, scientists who heard their inner voice and amplified it. To learn more about our guest and to view the highlights of this episode, head on over to fbw.hvj.coach. Our guest today is Jahan Peftin Jamas, one of the seven co-founders of Bombay Hemp Company. You heard it right. They are making their empire, uh, sorry, their empire out of hemp. And they are all missionaries with zeal who have articulated a vision to grow industrial hemp on a commercially viable scale through a scientific and evidence-based approach. What is most exciting and enterprising is their pursuit and passion for creating the backbone of an industry which will change the very face of rural India in terms of entrepreneurial zeal. Because the central nervous system serving this backbone is that of catalytic capitalism. These seven stars whom I want to address as Saptarishi in, out, and center, believe in the power and potential of their vision to fulfill their duty to Bharat, to India, because it is this land which has given them the life, the liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jahan, a very warm welcome to the Small Big Wins podcast today. Thank you so much, Harsh, for having us on the Small Big Wins podcast. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, and of course, I wanted to share right off the bat that we are some of us co-founders and Saptarishi, as you refer to us, are already quite big fans of your podcast. Uh, and we've been following it quite astutely since you've launched uh, uh, a short while ago. Uh, and greatly looking forward to being here and sharing more about the story and diving deep into conversation with you. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Thank you so much. I think the subject which you deal with, him is indeed offbeat, it is unique. And till I came to know you and I started uh, having interactions with you, I personally did not know the wide and far-reaching consequences which hemp can have on the economy, on people, on agriculture, on industry. It is just fascinating to learn what I'm learning. The first question to you today, Jahan, is that cannabis, for some it is a nemesis, for others it's a friend, a lifesaver for others, and religious for some. And for many, it serves even as a subsistence kind of a product. So can you just tell us very quickly a little gyan on what is hemp, what is cannabis, what is marijuana, what is bhang? Because this universe is filled with these words and we want our audience to get it right. Absolutely correct. I think as you correct, uh, correctly said, it's important to take a step back and understand the etymology of what are hemp and cannabis. Now, cannabis refers to the, the genus and the species broadly and majorly the genus of the cannabis plant family, which is very commonly known today as marijuana, ganja, charas, uh, a wide variety of sort of recreational names and terms, colloquial terms. But the origin of this plant dated back to about 2000, 2500 years ago in the upper and middle Himalayas uh, between India and Nepal. Now, essentially, as society evolved and progressed, we saw that the cannabis 
um, seed eventually began from our sort of Southeast Asian and South Asian subcontinent. But thanks to how globalization worked back in that era, a lot of travelers and explorers actually traveled to India and traveled to Asia and learned about this plant, took it back into their Western developed countries and, and began making it part of their mainstream program. For example, the likes of uh, King Henry VIII used to mandate farmers to grow the cannabis for the fiber of the plant because it could be used for rope to tie cattle or for uh, naval warships, for the armed forces, for basic administrative uses, etc. Or for example, the likes of, uh, uh, the likes of some of the uh, ancient Romans and of course a lot of gurus and yogis from ancient Indian culture have been using the, uh, the extract from the leaf, what we call bhang today or the oil from the seed, which has no narcotic value for a variety of uses, whether it's for nourishment, whether it's to make the skin uh, uh, much more uh, kind of moist during dry and sort of cold. So there's been a lot of intricate history attached to this crop. And I think, you know, one example I'd like to give you is 1500 years ago, and I'm, I'm sure you would have heard of the Ajanta and the Elora caves. Uh, a lot of people would have uh, traveled to them. Now, the, when you travel to the Ajanta Alora caves in Maharashtra, you realize that there's a big difference in how the upkeep is internally within the cave. Now, recently, about five years ago, an archaeologist discovered that in the Elora caves, which is much better maintained from the internal cave lining, was majorly because they use cannabis fiber or hemp fiber mixed with lime and they lined the cave walls about 1500 years ago, which preserved it till date. And I think that speaks to a lot of the deep-seated history we have with the cannabis genus of the plant family and accordingly what we refer to as hemp today. Now, essentially how the family of cannabis works is there are broadly about three different species. There's one called Indica, which originated from India, that is high in something called THC. That is uh, the only narcotic element in cannabis, basically what gets you high. Out of 120 different chemical compounds, it's the only one that gets you high. Now, um, Indica originated from India, China, Nepal. But gradually, as it moved across the 14th to 17th centuries into more kind of Western climates, uh, they adapted it to a species called a sativa. Uh, essentially, what happened is they realized that there were certain types of species of cannabis which were high in narcotic, short and bushy. But there were some that weren't really kind of high in potency. But they had a lot of medical if, uh, benefits, but their entire physiology was different. And that's around the same time when the likes of Carolus Linnaeus came out with the entire kind of system of, uh, uh, of mapping out how the genus, species and subspecies worked of cannabis. But interestingly here enough in India, even though you have about 50 countries in the world today that are working with what we call hemp, that is a low narcotic version of the cannabis uh, family, which is used for the fiber and seed of the plant that has up to about 5,000 to 7,000 industrial uses. Everything from clothes to automobile paneling to cosmetics to nutrition to biofuels, etc. And then there's the medical cannabis side, which is, speaks about a higher THC limit, where, uh, which has greater narcotic potential. The reason behind this is uh, the medical cannabis plants that uh, people focus around and people have heard terms like CBD in the West, in the United States or in Europe, is majorly around the flower or the leaf of the plant. Um, that uh, what scientists realized around the 70s, 60s and 70s in a more modern fashion is a lot of the compounds within the flower have tremendous benefits for patients with HIV, epilepsy, palliative pain, anxiety, mood, stress disorders. But unfortunately, through the last kind of 40, 50 years, there was a lot of stigmatization and propaganda attached to cannabis as a whole, where it became sort of a dirty word to say in, in the common rooms. But over the last 10 to 20 years, a lot of Countries have embraced this crop as a part of mainstream economy, the likes of Canada, China, etc. But in India, we still sit on a gold mine of cannabis and hemp. 
in fact, I think the approximate now, uh, amount of hemp that grows in India is about 500,000 hectares growing wildly. But nobody has actually managed to breed it. And I think the best example I can give you is till 1916, Basmati rice was not a concept in India. Most villages in rural parts of India used to go into forest areas and reserves and collect wild varieties of rice, bring them back into the fields and try and breed them in local manners or try and grow them on their fields. That is where hemp is and cannabis is India today. That while the rest of the world, the likes of China and Canada, have actually categorized and assorted how the different hemp works. High in narcotic, low in narcotic, good in fiber, good in flower, good in seed. Unfortunately, in India, we sat on a sort of a treasure trove of information and plant material. But uh, a lot of it just remained in our backyard, where it remained only according to um, uh, local use of bhang during a cultural or religious festival. Or the most you'd hear about it is about a narcotic or a revenue or a police official burning it down because it's illegal, which is rightly so. And that really pointed us out to the biggest gap that we have a huge mainstream potential agriculture crop called hemp, where in the 16th century, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure it is quite interesting for, a lot, for yourself and a lot of uh, listeners, the word canvas on which painters paint canvas actually comes from the word cannabis. Because in the 14th to 16th century, some of the top painters in the world used to use fabric made from the fiber of the cannabis plant. They used to use seed oil from the cannabis seed as their paint and varnish. So it was such an intrinsic part of art, culture, society, history, economy, military, etc. that we realized it's important to bring it back into the mainstream and focus attention around hemp, the narcotic, lower narcotic version of this crop, where fiber can be used as an alternative replacement to conventional crops. Oil seeds can be a big plug-in into the agriculture mainstream. And the potential is extremely extremely unlimited whereas on the medicinal front i think it's exponential potential we're talking about about actually plugging into india's healthcare system and being able to uh, take advantage of uh, this new natural plant-based way of uh, how people are looking at things as well so from a history we evolved with Hemp being the common abbreviated term uh, to refer to the cannabis plant, whether Egypt or India, etc., for 1500 years, but up to the up to about the 14th to 16th, 17th century, and about 18th century when Carolus Linnaeus came in the picture, and a lot of people are related to the, I would say, indicing uh, uh, and creating the right kind of indices uh, for genus and species of different plants and flora and fauna, is when gradually that became a lot more scientific to refer to it as cannabis as a larger family. Uh, Whereas hemp today colloquially refers to the lower narcotic version and medicinal cannabis or uh, I would say cannabis um, uh, sativa and indica hybrid refer to the higher narcotic versions. But in India today, unfortunately, we don't say sativa, indica or ruderalis, which is the third species. We just refer to it as cannabis that is high in THC or low in THC so that the optics and the binary nature of it becomes a lot more clear to scientists, regulators and agronomists worldwide as well. Oh, Jahan, that's a Jahan of information. <laughs> that was really interesting stuff. One, the word canvas actually coming out of cannabis and uh, the painters using fiber or the cloth made out of uh, hemp for painting and the oil as varnish and using it in paints. The fact which you shared about Ajanta Elora Though, you know, I operate for a large time out of Aurangabad. I was not aware of, of this. And I, I'm sure my colleagues and industry people over here with whom I interact probably don't know about this. So I think this is going to be one key highlight 
to share with our people over here. And the basmati rice, so actually you, you are saying that till 60s there was no basmati rice and then these varieties were picked and they were brought from different areas and then they were commercialized and now they are, of course, number of segments of basmati uh, being sold commercially. You're absolutely right. And this is a key part about agriculture that um, is so scientific and technical that it sometimes goes kind of unregarded. The concept of breeding. Now, that is where institutions today, like the Indian Institute, uh, Indian Agriculture Research Institute called IARI in New Delhi, and the likes of, you know, Dr. M.S. Swaminathan, they such a pivotal role in 60s, 70s, because this, the reason we had a green revolution is because people realized we need to standardize what we eat. We need to be able to breed a rice variety that can give a poor farmer a certain yield so that he has a certain minimum fixed income by the end of the entire proceeding, where there's a certain minimum nutrition value. And that's with the concept of breeding plants, taking one plant from one area, second plant from another area, creating a third version, cross-breeding it with a fourth and fifth version, and using that kind of a scientific aptitude to be able to come to the exact right plant that fits in the right geography, that gives the right income, the right nutrition value, and creates the potential for a great value chain and that is where the role and the likes of dr kv prabhu who sits at who's still at iri and the likes of dr ms swaminathan and some extremely senior scientists i believe dr yk gupta as well uh, contributed immensely by actually taking rice out from our reserves working with agronomic communities taking five to ten years to actually breed a variety that would grow in indian fields where vis-a-vis actually growing in some uh, random corner of a jungle where a tribal, you would have to count on tribal communities to go and collect it. It would be seasonal, produce would not be standardized, you would never know what you're getting. And creating that entire back-end value chain is so critical. And that was the gap that was missing in India with cannabis. Uh, we realized this in early days in about 2014, uh, a year after we started in 2013, after understanding the landscape. And we also realized this is why China today is the world's largest hemp and cannabis economy uh, alongside the likes of France and uh, Canada. Because the governments invested millions and almost a decade worth of breeding the right kind of cannabis to work in their farmer's field. And that is exactly the same phenomenon that worked in India's Green Revolution 1.0 through the 60s and 70s. And our thought and our, our hypothesis is maybe it's time for a Green Revolution 2.0. Wow. So, Jahan, now I, I understand more clearly when you talk about what kind of entrepreneurial magic this could do in the rural areas. Now, you said that 500,000 hectares is probably estimated to be already cultivated in cannabis naturally or otherwise? Yes, that's correct. About 80 to 90% of this 500,000, give or take 500,000 is only a rough figure because we're, today we're at a point where we have three narcotic agencies. We have a lot of enforcement bodies, but it is all, still almost impossible to estimate the amount of cannabis that grows in this country. This is still a broad estimate that 500,000 hectares, about 70 to 80% of that is, is actually just growing naturally in jungle, forest, reserve land areas uh, where tribals are settled and rural communities are settled. And maybe about 20 to 30% is actually a grown uh, for illegitimate and sort of illicit black market operations. Um, of the 70 to 80%, because it's growing, 
a lot of rural communities don't have access to income so it becomes uh, an easy source of income and that sort of uh, sends them down the rabbit hole of the black market as well and that's why we realize being able to target that uh, would actually de-risk this and legitimize the industry in such a way that a lot of the rural community would not feel the need or compulsion to have to grow for a black market but would have a legitimate industry player to work it who give them the seeds help them grow buy back the produce take it to scale and make them the essence of the brand message that is the rural communities of india which is exactly what we wanted to do with bohico because we realized sometimes to tackle multifarious problems that involve uh, narcotic nexuses involve the lack of an agriculture mainstream for a conventional crop uh, uh, some kind of bureaucratic indifference on occasion uh, i think somebody had a saying recently they said you don't need to hit a person three times for it to matter you just need to hit them once to make it count and i think it's about timing and the effectiveness of using one kind of bullet and we realize this silver bullet would help us be able to have a layered conversation with bureaucracy and political machinery about how we can take this out of the jungle reserve area how it doesn't need to serve these kind of deep market illicit interests and how it can be legitimized to recreate a manufacturing industry based around the rural belts of india so jahan what is growing today in the jungle reserve or in the interiors of the country is this the industrial variety or is this the higher thc variety india is an extremely heterogeneous country in terms of agronomic condition and variety and cannabis being a weed crop it grows in almost every condition whether temperate tropical almost frigid it's grown it's quite hardy and versatile but what happens is its growth pattern is based on a few factors uh, i would say scientific factors like day length uh, the altitude and height it's at which is cultivated amount of nutrients is getting organically or inorganically sort of a wide variety of factors that contribute to whether it's a better hemp or say a better cannabis variety but to put it in in a matter of fact the way india is structured is in a place like uttarakhand you go to a rural part of uttarakhand and where we've been working for the last uh, several years uh, a major crux of the cannabis that grows wild in uttarakhand is lower in thc that means lower in narcotic version but is better for its fiber and seed usage but if we go to manipur or meghalaya or if we go to um, uh, you know the the jungle area of chikmangalore um, somewhere between andhra pradesh telangana and odisha uh, mm. the variety may be more structured to grow in a for higher thc because there you have sort of the black market operators who have some know how on how to increase its narcotic potential so it depends entirely on state to state district to district and where we're speaking about but i think the blank canvas is a lot of north india and a lot of north indian plants that we seen in places like uttaranchal are more hemp based and lower narcotic whereas in himachal they are more higher narcotic more flower and leaf based uh, cannabis plants um and i guess on a state to state basis how the entire system has evolved actually uh, kind of uh, creates a landscape by which we identify whether there is greater low narcotic or low thc potential or a higher thc potential from the plants within the state and that's exactly what we've been trying to do harsh and you know that's the reason why it's a great question is one of the activities we've been doing at bohico and we essentially in 2014 when we started the company we spent the first year even learning is it even legal for us to be in this industry we knocked right. on all the doors of the right ministry is the right departments at a central government a state government level and we were very privileged and fortunate that a very senior bureaucratic officers at a central ministry level in ministries of finance agriculture convened a meeting where they allowed us to present our vision for hemp and cannabis for the larger industry that became very clear that this is the biggest gap 
we know this cannabis in india but we don't know what grows in manipur don't know what grows in himachal don't know what grows in kerala don't know we, we know it grows but we we can't we've never measured it so that's where we partnered as bohico with a, 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 a two csir institutes in india one based in uttar pradesh called the national botanical research institute or nbri and the indian institute of integrative medicine uh, based in jammu or triple im where what we did was in the first few years of bohico our founder teams and scientific teams went on the ground into the rural hinterland of india actually used certain parameters that we had created with our scientific team and evaluated how natural cannabis plants are growing we selected and shortlisted seeds from certain varieties that we thought have good potential and we actually today have india's largest seed bank and data bank of cannabis seeds we have about 300 to about 350 land races of different cannabis from across 14 different states in india and every year we add 50 to 100 new versions of that as well our goal was to study these and understand if i grow a, a plant from meghalaya in uttar pradesh tropical conditions will it be good will it not will the fiber be better will the seed be better will there be good flowering potential for medicinal use or lesser medicinal use and being able to get that data and help us understand what works where and reconfigure that is where we realize laying the bricks it's a very arduous tedious scientific technical complex long job but if this is done correctly in the next 5 7 years india will know for the next 50 years that the cannabis sitting in his backyard has what potential and sometimes someone needs to step in and measure it and we realize by working with government institutions we uh, essentially get their buy in of credibility and their buy in of curiosity to engage and actually interpret the scientific information of cannabis that grows in india because today uh, i think the best example would be say for example uh, we are sitting on a resource that the world is telling us is valuable and we know is valuable but we've never valued it and that's exactly where we are today by valuing it scientifically we are able to estimate what type of significant impact it could have in the future so jahan if i understood this well the seed bank where you have some 350 varieties today so they have been mapped to where they are coming from and what kind of cannabis plant they are yielding that's correct and now what you want to do is with the help of science and evidence prove that okay if i take the seed which is doing very well over here serves all the purposes for industry if i take it from here to this place this is what probably i'll need to do to make the same thing again absolutely right absolutely right and we were oh. already actually through our process have been the first company to work with a research institution to legally grow cannabis for research in india we've already done two cycles of growing cannabis legitimately in three different states purely focused around this research such that we can build a strong backbone for the industry john i'm going to come back to this but you know wherever i got an opportunity to read about you or hear you i have heard you say that there are 25000 industrial uses and some 17 18 industries across which hemp is used that's correct now what are the few top ones globally a few top industrial uses or few top industries however you would like to answer this i think the best way to answer this question is to break it up on the on the basis of the cannabis plant let's start with the stock in the fiber when we talking about stock and fiber i'd like to share a very amusing story with you you see a couple of years ago uh, one of my co-founders and myself were traveling across rural netherlands uh, to understand how netherlands as a country has built a very strong system for hemp and cannabis and we had a meeting with the first hemp farmer uh, for fiber 
in uh, in the country now it is in a small town 8000 people called utpekla it's sort of i think on the german border or thereabouts um and we had a meeting with him and it started raining he showed us his fields all growing hemp he showed us a house all of the house the lining internal lining external lining the structural material was made from the fiber of the hemp plant the chairs inside the tables inside everything was made of hemp and that blew our mind but that wasn't the end of the story so it started raining our meeting got over and we had to go for our next meeting about uh, across town 10 minutes away but there's no uber we're having trouble navigating he said you know what guys i will drop you now this is a farmer in a town of 8000 people in rural middle of nowhere netherlands mm-hmm. he pulls out a bmw x5 mm-hmm. so we sit in the x5 and first of all which is blown away that we're sitting in an x5 in a town of less than 10000 people in the middle of europe and not knowing where we're going and it's of course very amusing for us youngsters we finish we have a good conversation with him he drops us to our meeting we get out of the car he doesn't say bye the last thing he says to us sends shivers down our spine he said by the way you know this car the panels of this car are made from fiber from my hemp field and he put on his sunglasses and drove away and that blew us away because what we learned after that is in place in countries like your in in continents like europe crops like hemp as a fiber crop are actually subsidized energy crops where bmw mercedes are using this as an eco friendly material as part of their automobile panel that's one use i can give uh at the second side you have the textile use you have the likes of levis who actually made one of the first pairs of jeans using hemp back in the 50s and 60s revisiting hemp for its purposes you have some of the top designers i think um uh, stella the likes of stella mccartney and some other international designers are all uh, walking paris and new york fashion shows with with hemp today you have uh, uh, a range of its use in home textiles and technical textiles today people actually use it for its ro- still use it for its rope material and in fact i'll give you a very interesting use we found at uh, bohico we had done a innovation project where we essentially carbonize the stock of the hemp fiber um, and we realize after you burn it activate it and carbonize it you actually get a graphene like material that is uh, and i'm sure i'm sure uh, you know very well how 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 valuable graphene is today whereas as a 2d wondrous nano material we realize using the cannabis fiber to create graphene is a game changer the key is about scale and we realize that is only one of plenty of uses we can find only on the stock alone when we talk about the seed today if you walk into any body shop store in the world whether it's in india whether it's in a duty free in dubai or in even in countries like singapore where you have drug penalties associated with cannabis you will still find that top selling products are hemp face balms face protectors hemp seed oil based foot protectors hemp creams hemp packs uh, and it's become such a global phenomenon in the cosmetics and sort of the nutrition domain where today uh, some of the largest players in north america are using the hemp seed and hemp seed oil uh, as part of key ingredients in healthy foods like cornflakes and cereals and multigrains but they've taken it to the next level i read an article recently there is uh, some uh, Uh, a very big company hemp based company close to milwaukee that is going to start retailing pizzas all different flavors chicken pesto etc where the crust is actually made of hemp seed oil and hemp seed uh, which is just blew my mind um, and it showed us you know how multifarious the uses are another use of the seed that we recently discovered is biofuel usage where we realized the the biofuel inefficiency that we unfortunately encountered in india could eventually be combated in the long form because you have between 30 to 40% oil output uh, from the seed of the cannabis or the hemp crop whereas with jetrofa that was being used for years and billions of spent the yield never went beyond 5 to 7% and we realized we're sitting on a gold mine 
Uh, in fact, I think there was a Pune researcher who actually studied its efficiency of using hemp seed oil based biofuel and actually realized it's much more efficient than uh, conventional fuels, uh, especially when we're speaking about how versatile the usage is, uh, whether it's the stock being used in all of these areas I just described, whether automobile panels or textiles or nanomaterials or I would say MDF boards, hempcrete and you know structural construction materials, whether they're talking about the seed for cosmetic or nutrition or a wide variety of kind of innovative uses that people are now exploring. Uh, and that is only the start of the entire the golden journey because that is not even touched the medical use of it where the flower today is being studied across the world for everything or a range of different indications fibromyalgia multiple sclerosis there's an fda approved drug in the united states for lenogastro syndrome and certain pediatric epilepsy uh, certain types of drugs are approved cannabis drugs are actually approved in different countries for uh, palliative pain and for HIV and tuberculosis patients. Uh, you know, the spectrum is extremely large. Uh, today, you have uh, a multi-billion dollar global market. It only just focuses around the flower. Whereas the fiber and the seed in isolation, where hemp is today from a supply chain point of view, is obviously not the scale of cotton or not at the scale of other common agriculture commodities, but even at the scale it's at, it's still an extremely viable brand and concept material uh, today. And I'll give you another example, Colgate Palmolive, Colgate actually launched a hemp seed oil based toothpaste recently in, in the United States, which has become a hot seller. So, so basically when you speak about the uses, it, it depends on where you're looking to use it, how you're looking to use it, but it's this versatility is so, I would say commonplace and ubiquitous that we're realizing that today from uh, obscure parts of the world, people are making hemp based planes where they're using the fiber to create the structural material for smaller aeroplanes. In parts of Australia, they use it to make surfboards, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in certain parts of the world, they're kind of using the hemp-based fiber for other kind of carbon black base and carbon ink-based solutions. So every innovator and engineer and entrepreneurs realize, and what we've realized, the biggest gap is getting the materials in the hands of the people who are able to tinker. And when that happens, that is when you create the real goal and the real essence of uh, innovation. Um, and that's where we realize plugging in and empowering, uh, I would say, innovators to do this. Uh, for example, where, uh, and I think, you know, the news will eventually break today, uh, later today as well, and so I'll sh share it with you. We've actually partnered with uh, an Indian company to make, I think, Asia's first hemp-based gin, where I believe they're using some parts of our hemp seed or seed oil ingredients and combining it with gin to make it a healthy-based gin and tonic. Wow. Uh, that type of innovation we realize is unparalleled and incremental. It's not something only six or seven co-founders or a team of 20 can do. But what we can do is give, give it into the hands and of the millions who can tinker and be able to define and justify how these 25,000 uses are so credible for the future. Yeah, I want to pitch in saying two things here. One, existence gave us everything to be self-sufficient. But our search for the outward we forget what is available right in front of us. And secondly, like the world of coding and how with coding solutions are being created, I think you have probably started a revolution of hemp coding. You are doing everything which is required to build the future with hemp and build a much better planet. I'm just reminded to tell you, you talked about sativa as the species, which is important for this. I don't know if it, this has any meaning, but the words sativa and sattva are so close to each other. 
in fact uh, it's a good point you've raised harsh that's actually the origin from what we have read of the the concept or the term uh, sativa as well uh, in indica referring to india and uh, sativa referring to sattva when we started bohiko we realized that this was a startup age where you had companies doing big exits before we even left college when we started the company we had two paths we could walk are we founders who are looking for an exit or are we people who are looking to create a legacy and we realized we were quite unanimous and that's one point where six seven of us aligned we realized we want to create a legacy that outlives us that 200 years from now india's hemp and cannabis agriculture ecosystem is one of the best in the world and we would feel proud say on our last day on earth knowing that we made even a small mark in making this happen and for us that that had the greatest value of all and that's why you know we realized we're all in it for the long haul this is not about a 10 year horizon and you know we were very fortunate that during the journey we had the likes of mr ratan tata and mr rajan anandan who believed in this that this is about patience because at end of the day uh, if we look at the likes of amazon or uh, i would say most uh, precise example of mcdonald's surgeon of breaking the profitability glass ceiling in india um, you know these journeys took 11 10 to 15 years and we realized that is the type of journey we want to take but we want to take it even even greater for the long haul actually build a lasting legacy that has an impact that even if we were to retire some day there'd be hundreds and thousands if not uh, lakhs and millions of people actually benefiting from such a system i think your legacy should not be called a legacy but it should be called empathy that's a good one i'm going to be using that i'm going to share that with the founders as well <laughs> please go ahead jahan uh, <laughs> now you mentioned that china is the largest producer of hemp and it has widespread applications of hemp and on the other side we also in india have the uh, wherewithal and probably it is happening so much in an unorganized way and not getting uh, the fruition which it should get and that is how you have come into this picture but how can this be done more swiftly i mean if china is already there they are already doing it why cannot our bureaucracy why cannot our government why cannot our system our complete system give it the push which it is required to give rather than in the next 15 20 25 years in the next 5 years uh, how can that happen i mean i sometimes feel that talking to you you should be in a great hurry but there would be a lot of constraints around you that which not should i untie first you're absolutely right essentially i think the best example uh, somebody said uh, um, a couple of years ago somebody gave me a really kind of great analogy for an entrepreneur they said an entrepreneur is basically somebody uh, who is building a plane while it's in the air and you know sometimes that feels like the job that you know you have to untangle multiple knots and figure out which knot untangles many at the same time but that that being said we have to understand one key thing china took 10 to 15 years to build an industry that is an overnight success with hemp where today 70% of textiles from hemp in fiber and fabric come from china where about 50 to 70% of the world supply of cbd a very good medical or therapeutic ingredient uh from the flower and the leaf come from china the reason is because the the government was so vested in the concept of hemp becoming and i think you know it's very important to understand the mindset and philosophy by which uh, the chinese government uh, viewed this strategically 
there the common understanding was china is a very large cotton growing country there's a lot of cotton um there's a lot of resources devoted to it and it's basically eating up a lot of the agriculture farmland they realize they are a growing population and they have more mouths to feed their question in their hypothesis in their head was is there a crop we can grow where the fiber and fabric can eventually replace cotton from an ecological environmental and cost effective and quality point of view where we would actually be able to free up more land during its cultivation to grow more food crops side by side to feed our rural populations and the chinese thought of it very structurally methodically they gave projects to their top agriculture institutes and says you have 7 years make me seeds that farmers can grow you do whatever it takes and that's exactly what they did today china is in the eighth generation of cannabis and hemp seeds that farmers can grow india has not begun its first generation so essentially the first generation and first horizon of this battle for global supremacy in hemp has been lost we have to count this out what we have to focus on is the next 20 to 25 years that is in the next 3 to 5 years how does india develop one variety take it to three varieties take it to five take it to 10 25 and then be able to kind of incrementally close the gap on china in the long form and long term the rationale behind this for china and for the fiber and the fabric use also has a secondary kind of strategic value that is a military purpose you see um as we know china has been kind of uh pushing into a lot of spaces in different countries uh one of which is on the border of myanmar now what very few people know is on the skirmishes on the border more often than not the weather is very tropical hot and humid so if you're wearing cotton clothes in a humid climate with a big backpack with a rifle you're barely going to move so you become vulnerable they needed a hemp fabric they needed a lighter fabric that's breathable durable absorbs less uv and hemp was the natural solution so today china's largest a uh, buyer of their hemp fabric and textiles is their own military that uses it for uniforms socks curtains carpets in fact they have taken it to the next level they have created a military research center only devoted to hemp to find all of the uh, i would say defense based applications of this plant whether from the stem whether from the seed whether from the uh, flower whether from the leaf and that is where china is they are miles ahead of us but what we realize is fortunately in the last i would say 7 years the indian government state and center has woken up massively the question you have asked me is a question we've been asked by plenty of bureaucrats and plenty of policy makers and we said look it's simple the key is the science if you unlock the science you can scale an industry's potential at a very quick level but you cannot hurry the science because there are two paths we can walk today we can do this fast where there is naturally a pathway it's a pathway taken in the us and canada where it's turned to the wild west of cannabis markets or we can do this right which is what china has done where today in china if you uh, in the last 10 years by growing hemp fiber in one province of say yunnan hemp uh, only the hemp plant only for the seed in a province like helonyang and i think i may be mixing this up they've actually lifted several hundred thousand if not several million farmers above their poverty line just by growing this plant which in turn is what by the government to use as a large material and whatever is left they export to the rest of the world typical china model and it is extremely successful and effective india needs to internalize and build for a domestic economy first for example there needs to be a day where you have fiber uh, uh, you, uh, you have automobile companies in india vying for eco friendly autom- automobile paneling solutions you need the top kind of seed oil and cosmetic companies and sort of uh, pharma companies focusing on this uh, on the seed or on on the flower etc to do that you need to give them supply and that is the biggest constraint today 
being able to bring the uh, uh, economies of scale in terms of supply and demand from a pricing point of view is essentially where the entire conversation kind of uh, slips away today. That is where China has a unique advantage. And that's where even the United States is building a unique advantage. And I'll give you an example. Five years ago, the amount of industrial hemp grown in the United States was zero. Today for hemp, for fiber and seed, they're growing upwards of 200,000 uh, acres. That's what they were able to do because they spent three to four years. And of course, you know how the agronomists and scientists are in the United States and developed countries. They work at a much faster momentum and speed. Um, they were able to actually breed varieties, take them into the field, help farmers grow them and turnkey the solution to the next level, something called agriculture extension, which is where today India scientists, because of course, you know, the systems and being able to work with multiple state governments, getting everybody on the same page is a time consuming affair. We realize our goal is not hurry. There is no haste to do this because we are, we are looking if in the next 20 years, India is contributing 25 to 45% to the global economy of hemp fiber and or hemp seed and or the cannabis flower. That is a great position to be. Market dominance is where we don't need to be today because India's global market contribution to hemp today is 0.00001%. Whereas China's is 70%. So we're at completely opposite ends of the spectrum. We need to learn from the Chinese. We need to kind of work and collaborate with countries that have success, understand where they made mistakes in the early days and communicate that to the bureaucrats in a realistic fashion. Because I think, you know, this is one thing that when people get excited about a new concept, they want it now, 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 now. And that is everywhere. And that's commonplace. But sometimes it's important to understand that there will be challenges to get it immediately. But it is an eventuality and being able to have that patience and work with bureaucracy and policymakers and get them to buy into that concept. We feel is sort of one of our soft big wins, making them understand that, look, just because you made an announcement before an election, whichever party or whatever, doesn't mean you can execute something that you think will happen in six months. There are countries that took seven years to do this. So take your time, do it right, build it step by step, have a few players at the start. Build, let those few players build, let them build ancillary industries and be more methodical as compared to only focusing on hyper growth. Because if we do the next three to five years right as an industry, then the next five to 15 years can be all about hyper growth. But today is not the time for India to be having that discussion. Our conversation should be about how strong the roots and foundation should be and how close should industry be working with government to make sure we are counter punching what the rest of the world is doing. Well said, well said. Uh, completely agree with you. I am absolutely inclined to ask you this question now that why did, why did we forget this? It's a great question. In fact, um, you know, I will give credit uh, to, uh, to previous Indian government administrations, previous bureaucrats and technocrats. The reason being, I think it's important to understand how global regulation and optics towards cannabis flow. Back in the 30s and 40s, uh, between the mid-30s to, to the late 30s, just before World War II, there was an entire propaganda campaign around the concept of cannabis. Even though, ironically, hemp was a mandated crop to grow in uh, parts of the United States for a long time. It was a, it was a tax subsidy-based crop. Um, but in the 30s and 40s, there's an entire political propaganda campaign uh, kind of imposed by the new kind of narcotic agencies in the United States that had a lot of ripple effects where the term marijuana today, a lot of people call it marijuana, but they don't realize it's actually a racial slur. 
marijuana was used to refer to the concept of uh, African Americans and Mexicans uh, supposedly consuming marijuana in this sort of yellow journalism campaign uh, created in the United States to abduct and assault white women. And people don't realize how the racial roots of these common terms even still have a lasting effect today. What this did was this had a cascading effect where uh, just after World War II, and this is this is extremely you know United States, where in the uh, in the 30s they had this uh, yellow journalism saying cannabis is bad. In World War II, they decided to reverse the propaganda and say hemp is good. We need hemp for victory in World War II because they needed raw material. And straight after the war was over, they back went back to the ban on cannabis. And then what they did was. From the 50s through the 60s, they started putting a lot of soft and hard pressure on countries through uh, global platforms like the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, uh, Single Convention on Narcotic and Psychotropic Substances, etc. Where they told developing countries like India, you have 25 years to create an act which regulates how narcotics like opium and cannabis, which were historically and culturally used for medical, therapeutic and recreational purposes in India, Pakistan, Bhutan, African countries, Middle East. Uh, because we feel that it has a narcotic value element. But India's technocrats fought vehemently and said, okay, we'll yield to the fact that the cannabis flower may have some psychoactive effect, but what we call bhang, the leaf, what we call uh, the uh, bhij, that's the seed, and what we call fiber in the stem, uh, that is the danthal, has to remain untouched. And in fact, our technocrats lobbied the hardest at United Nations in 61 and 71 when they were drafting the protocols on how narcotic acts are to be drafted uh, to exclude the leaf, the seed and the fiber from the definition of cannabis and what is to be regulated as a narcotic. But from 61 to 85, Indian government faced a huge amount of pressure, especially uh, the Rajiv Gandhi government around 84. Where, uh, uh, because majorly because Indian, uh, India, as well as other smaller developing countries at that time, uh, majorly the non, uh, non-aligned nations at that time, uh, had to sign a charter in 61 to say in 25 years, I'll create a narcotic act to regulate these. In 1984, the United States knocked on our door and said, hey, you guys have not created this. We said, okay, but we don't know what to do. This is our culture. This is, you know, our legacy, our history. They made it very clear. That, of course, you know, through kind of, uh, I would say, you know, uh, political uh, discussions and I would say the diplomacy route made it clear that uh, if India does not enforce this, we will face repercussional economic effects uh, to the tune of, uh, you know, I would say massive uh, tariffs on the computers, IT, infrastructure, technology that was being imported into India at that time. So they essentially use one counterweight to battle the other, where India was kind of nudged into this position to create the NDPS Act, the Narcotic Drugs and Psychotropic Substances Act. But what our bureaucrats did was they were a little ahead of their time. They exactly took the United Nations Act and replicated the act here without changing any form, knowing that it still allows the medical use of the flower in a research and a pharmaceutical fashion. It still uh, does not categorize the leaf as a narcotic of the plant, doesn't categorize the seed as a narcotic, it doesn't categorize the fiber as a narcotic. So it actually left room open for a generation and an age where young agile companies can work with policymakers, consensus build, and arrive at a common conclusion that this act actually does empower state governments, empowers industries and academicians. It's the key is interpretation and execution. So I think from an India horizon, India has contributed as much as it could to the dialogue and the narrative on keeping cannabis legitimate through the 60s and 70s. It was unfortunate Western pressure where today, look, at, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but I'd like to point at the irony where today the United States is the world's largest market for CBD and cannabis based products, where you have 
communities of people um, uh, who are building sort of cannabis startups or getting millions of dollars in funding. Whereas ironically, on the other side, you have, you know, disenfranchised communities who still rot in jail for their previous indictments for cannabis consumption. So, I mean, that that's a perfect example of how not to do it. Uh, and I think, you know, that is where I'm, I'm very proud that India has taken a much more mature, respectful path where people are more understanding. There is a lot more, you know, kind of dialogue between states, between different uh, political affiliations, bureaucratic affiliations, scientific affiliations to see this is the common pathway we need to walk on as compared to a very scattergunned approach, which uh, whose propaganda unfortunately led us down the path where policy is today globally. John, I think anyone who would be hearing this conversation between us would not ever think of what kind of political pressures were there. The team, and hats off to this team of bureaucrats who, you know, weathered it and uh, found a way around it and uh, how trade barriers were used to threaten uh, the situation with this. Absolutely, Harsh. And you know, I completely agree you, agree with you. Hats off and salute to the bureaucrats of then of India and the bureaucrats of now of India. We've realized that they've unfortunately gained sort of uh, an unfair reputation due to a few bad apples. But right. I think, you know, it's very important to emphasize that there are so many good, efficient, upright officers who want the best for the nation. And for them, they want to work with youngsters, whether it's cannabis, whether it's robotics, it's automation, it's AI, it's EV, it's all these new ideas. They want us to come forward, engage with them and tell them how they can help and how we can help them in society. And I think it's important that people really, you know, get on, on, on board with that and be able to see the government and the bureaucracy in a positive light because they're, they're intellectuals. And I'm sure, Harsh, you definitely, through your experience, would definitely be able to give also a great validation and insight on that. Without a doubt, whatever success I have seen in terms of creating businesses or industries, I think I could point out which bureaucrat and how he was helpful to, to me and to that industry in just no time. I think they are definitely the backbone of having getting things done and uh, salutes to them. Absolutely. In fact, you know, uh, to be very, uh, to be very candid and forthright with you, there were many points where we realized bureaucratic hurdles would be easier than actually getting solutions. But credit to some of the best officers and the best human beings we've ever met, who still guide us and mentor us today across different ministries, uh, you know, people from the domains of narcotics, revenue, excise, intelligence, uh, some of the best of the best of minds uh, have seen value. And I'm very proud to share today that uh, uh, even during um, uh, during curriculum and education and syllabus um, uh, at the National Ac Academy of Customs, Excise and Narcotics in Faridabad, some of uh, the top ADG and sort of senior level officers wear hemp shirts by Bohiko and talk about how hemp and cannabis uh, needs to be viewed as a completely different concept, which is so important to build the grassroots awareness within the next batch of narcotic and revenue officers. And, you know, they, th these bureaucrats have taken it upon themselves proactively to do this. And we realize uh, they deserve the, the greatest amount of respect and salute. We realize the Indian system is inefficient. It's bogged down by a lot of kind of delays uh, in other domains which sometimes kind of delay uh, uh, have sort of, you know, cascading effect or delays on this side. But we realize if you're patient, if you give it time with them, if you're, you know, open-minded with them and willing to offer solutions to the problems that they may kind of uh, propose in this, they are, they view this as a, as a relationship for life. And, you know, a lot of people asked us uh, very frankly that, you guys must have to pay a lot of money under the table to get the work done. I'll be very frank with you. Nothing 
we none of us come from political families none of our fathers or grandfathers or uncles know any politician any senior bureau, bureaucrat we knocked on the doors ourselves as 21 22 year olds we sat down with them the first questions we were asked amusingly by every bureaucrat we mentioned was how old were you and we and of course we had to laugh and say we're 21 22 but that made them so happy that is 22 year olds and as youngsters you are willing to come and be brave enough to knock on my door and ask me my thoughts ask me get my view and build around that and you know i think uh, being able to uh, play into the intelligence and experience and wisdom of this huge system of bureaucrats and technocrats a large i would say a large number of them are so honest upright civil and noble the great role models and examples unfortunately the stories the stories don't get out enough to the media um and being able to really kind of tap into the wisdom we realized was uh, uh extremely valuable to us where today i'm fortunate to say that in our advisory board we have a former narcotic commissioner of india we have a former director general of the narcotic academy of customs excise still advised by some of the top technocrats uh in uh, union ministries and state governments and uh, are frankly some of the best most candid most progressive conversations and discussions have been had with them yeah i think they are absolutely a wealth of knowledge a wealth of possibilities emerge when you interact with these uh, bureaucrats on how to connect dots and uh, how to realize the vision which you are which you are set out for so salutes to them you spoke about shirts how do we buy your hemp shirts yeah very easy process all you have to go uh, you just have to log on to our website bohico.org okay. um uh, everything we have a range of textiles shirts t-shirts we have some amazing hemp food products which are great for nutrition and your immunity we have some cbd and thc products for arthritis and chronic pain and skin health so you have a whole plethora of options so if you go if you uh, i wouldn't uh, if i may say so you might be going you might log on to our website for a shirt you but you might be walking away with a lot more as well wow and and are some of these products which are which are put up on your website they are being made here manufactured here in india all of our products all of our products are manufactured in india oh okay okay fantastic and how what is the total product range you have out now um so we have basically three uh, uh three broad categories we have textile based products that are uh, focused around the yarns uh the fabrics and we had we have a garment division uh, which we are slowly kind of restructuring and evolving as well to be more b2b focused uh and the separate side and sort of what we feel is the future of of hemp and cannabis is our health products that includes hemp seeds hemp seed oil and hemp seed protein which are really good plant based sources for amino acids your omega 369 your full profile of uh, i would say nutritional health and uh, on the wellness side which we've recently launched our ayurvedic proprietary products where we use the extract of the leaf of the hemp plant that's the bhang um, and we actually create licensed ayurvedic formulations like topical oils to help patients with arthritis and joint pain and musculoskeletal pain we have topical products for skin health and we have actually recently launched a product for uh, to help uh, uh, patients with chronic pain neuropathic neuro, neuropathy issues palliative care uh, facing cancer with their with their acute pain and sort of managing the symptoms as well and we sort of have products lined up for menstrual health uh, anxiety migraines uh, gastrointestinal disorders anemia uh, a wide range of kind of products uh, on the horizon as well excellent excellent jahan what was the first time you realized about this non narcotic version of cannabis i think um, the first time i realized about this majorly um, i think is broken into uh, two parts 
there was there's a domestic story there's a india story and there's a global story the india story is that during our college days our six seven co-founders used to be part of a project called project chirag it was uh, it was a project to actually bring rural uh, solar electrification to rural india by uh, empowering um, uh, disabled communities to actually manufacture solar lanterns and, and sort of paying them the cost for that and bringing it to rural India. It was part of social enterprise projects we did in college. But during our visits, we used to go to uh, states like Rajasthan, Punjab, etc. We realized that in a lot of villages in, in North and Northwestern India, there was this generational understanding that the seed of the cannabis plant the oil of that was extremely useful for getting rid of stretch marks post-pregnancy. And it was sort of one of those uh, uh, things passed down from, uh, from grandmother to mother to the daughter, etc. Through time and it got us really fascinated. And I think the global story was around about a month after that, we had gone into our summer vacations and I had gone to visit my family in West Australia, my extended family. And we were taking a tour across West Australia. And uh, for people who've been there, they've realized a lot of rural West Australia beyond Perth isn't doing too well, hasn't been doing too well for a long time. But there was a town called Margaret River um, where people, they they were successful, they're prosperous, there's development. You know, when you go to a place of development, there's this sort of like a beehive of activity of positivity. That's exactly what he felt. And I was curious, I asked him, what are you doing? Uh, uh, what are you doing different compared to the town down the road that's pretty much bankrupt? He said, we do two things. We grow grapes for wine. And today, Margaret River is one of the top wine, uh, uh, wine-based towns in the world. And we grow hemp. That is for everything else. We make our surfboards, we make our houses using the fiber, we use the seed oil in our salads and our nutritional foods. And, and that's, that's kind of the eureka moment I said, okay, hold on. This, we've seen this in India, we've seen this in Australia. Here it's more organized, it's more efficient, people are thriving and prospering. But in India, it's still a subsistence local use that has not had that incredible impact it's had in a developed nation. Can we bridge this gap? And that, I guess, would be sort of one of those uh, I would say um, unique moments that really helped us understand and helped me particularly understand the value of this. Uh, plus combined with the fact that my, my mother's been suffering with arthritis for the last 20, 30, uh, 30 years or so. So uh, one of the goals in my life was to enter into a space where I can eventually help her. Uh, and uh, one of the first things I discovered is the use of CBD, whether you consume it or the use of hemp seed oil on the skin to help patients with arthritis and autoimmune disorders to help recover over the long term. Uh, so I guess these kinds of motivations and this ki- these kinds of epiphanies and realizing what the world is doing really helped align the vision as well. When did you pass out of college? We passed out of college in 2011. We oh. actually stumbled upon the idea of hemp and cannabis in 2010-11. But we decided that rather than uh, taking a dramatic approach of passing out of college and starting up on our own, We'd rather kind of, uh, uh, you know, cut our teeth in the space of, uh, uh, in different corporate spaces, whether it's consulting and advisory, whether it's marketing and advertising, whether creating other startups, whether it's getting education for law and for chartered accountancy. Uh, These types of profiles, all of us different founders picked up for two years, where we had told each other that at the end of 2012, 2013, 18 to 24 months from now, we're all going to meet again at a coffee shop and we're going to see if we're happy with where we are today and whether or not we feel it's time to pursue and take up this dream and how so. And end of 2012 is when we all, as we discussed, met at a coffee shop, um, sat down and said, look, I think it's the time. If we don't do it, someone else will. And if they do it, they may not do it right. We trust ourselves to do it the right way, the efficient way, where we can build a good name for not just ourselves, but even the country as a whole. Um, And I guess, you know, that really helped us uh, tip over the line and really take the plunge into this new generation of hemp and cannabis in India. 
So your work with cannabis, these two situations with Project Chirag and, and the, the insights which you got from North uh, for cannabis, and then your trip to Australia, uh, Margaret River, I think you said, uh, where yes, that's correct. This crop uh, and a very hugely positive people and success in that complete village. So, how much of all this do you think is uh, design? How much of all this do you think is coincidence? That's a great question. I think um, I'm a strong believer in destiny, and I think all of us are strong believers in destiny and fate. And I think we realized it was inevitable um, that we would enter into a space that would. I would say create something new. Um, and uh, I think a lot of us were, because we were commerce graduates, we realized we don't have the scientific and professional background to, uh, to be able to add great value and impact in spaces like software or AR, ML or robotics. But what we can do is we are able to spot gaps that exist in industry and build a value chain around those gaps, especially for actually getting tangible commercial products into the hands of people that help them physically. Uh, and, make a difference in their life. Um, you know, that was a, a major motivation uh, behind why uh, why we started Bohiko. But uh, I don't think uh, all of us are um, believers in blind coincidence. I think the dots were lined up. It was just what, what route we and what pathway we all chose to take at what time. Um, but I think this, um, from a destiny point of view and fate point of view, I think uh, our journey together was inevitable. Fantastic. Jahan, you have uh, always spoken about this business as a social business uh, in the order of environment, community, and then profits. Yes. At the same time, the possibilities which hemp brings for poverty alleviation, jobs, climate change, regenerative agriculture, uh, that's tremendous also. And the situation which we just faced in the country uh, with COVID-19 in the last few months and a lot of migrants going back to their villages, uh, don't you think this is just a great moment somehow to just magnify and catapult your efforts and give this kind of magic cannabis to them to inspire them to grow this? And uh, I think it could just lead to such a better and happier society if people are near their homes they exactly. are doing what they are made out to do exactly and it yeah. contributes to the entire ecosystem in such a wonderful way you're it's such a big opportunity right. for migrants you're absolutely right and Harsh, you know exactly that's the point where in crisis and chaos we've seen an opportunity for india to redevelop itself whether it's hemp or whether it's anything else from a rural backbone that is what separates china from the rest of the world and I'm sure, Harsh, through your experience, you might have traveled through different parts of China. You realize China isn't Beijing and Shanghai. It's the rest of China where the difference is made. It's a rural hinterland where agro-manufacturing, industrial manufacturing have taken off in the last 20 years. And this is our tipping point in India to redevelop that. And you're absolutely right. And as you correctly said, social business has been the founding principle and ethos by which we are, spirit by which we began Bohiko, where today we engage with 500 farmers from across Uttarakhand to purchase hemp based seeds from them. They used to sell it a Monday earlier for local sort of use in chutneys and sabjis, etc. that mm -hmm. we purchase for our products today and we help tell their story. Where over the last seven years, we've been working with uh, about 100 to 250 handloom artisans in parts of rural Uttarakhand who had lost all male members of uh, 
uh, their villages during the 2011 floods who had no income supply and no uh, you know source of income to be able to provide them another means of disposal to be able to take care of their families and build up rural india our journey started uh, for this started at that time but we realized now we're coming closer to the tipping point where today we get even more calls than ever even more messages than ever from parts of people from all parts of peri urban and rural india saying hi i am part of farming community i'm an i'm an agricultural land holder and i think you know one thing we have to important it's important to understand when i say the word farmer indian farmer what is the first picture that comes in your mind when you close your eyes it's an elderly gentleman in a white kurta white pajama white gandhi topi tilling his field right hmm. but that's not today's farmer today's farmer is his grandson who's going into that he's a guy who has a access to mobile access to information access to digital data who wears clothes western concepts phenomenon who watches videos on youtube learns about what's new what's innovative who takes the idea to the elder generation convinces them that is the part of india that's gone back home today and that is the part of india to tap into the latent intellectual potential to help restructure and reshape how we build industry from the base level whether it's our manufacturing operations in madhya pradesh or some of our supply operations in uttarakhand or some of our research operations in jammu or uttar pradesh uh, we realize that there is even greater interest than ever um, from people who have gone gone back home and want to plug in and as you correctly said work close to home and live the dream and that's the dream that we want to be able to empower them with we realize a lot of it's focused around how quickly can this industry in bohiko work to get policies in place by which we can grow this plant using our genetics employ local labor local agriculture labor be able to scale pilot cultivations use that produce working with farmer communities to uh, cultivate on their land buying it back from them giving them some absolute income credibility and dependence using it to process it uh, using it to process and put it into a product mainframe and actually showing an end to end vertically integrated value chain pilot in rural india is a huge core of our focus for the next 12 months so that once that pilot is shown that we can do this in a tier 2 tier ta- tier 3 town then the flood gates open and that's what we anticipate that uh, as you correctly mentioned that migrants have gone home laborers have gone home the working class of india the blue collar working class has gone home and there is a very strong chance they may not come back for a long while but this is an opportunity to enable them and empower them over the next 12 to 24 months by building pilot systems with hemp and cannabis and seeing how those can scale and working with local entrepreneurs and ecosystems and networks to actually build out their success uh in in a complement to how uh, bohiko succeeds because the way we view it is the only re- the only time when us founders can go to sleep happy at night is knowing we've made a difference because the way we measure, measure social impact is not just at the back end of cultivation and employing rural farmers and communities but at the front end of a product that we eventually hope to plug in back into these rural communities and be able to offer them their healthcare and sort of wellness solutions that they truly deserve Yes, Jahan. On the other side, you have also been working with Tata Memorial. You have been working with Ames. Uh, there is some work which you are also doing on synthetic plastic replacement. You already spoke about graphene. Where does all that stand today? What kind of uh, visibility do you have of that giving results in what kind of time frame? Sure. so when it comes to our medical projects and you know our partnerships and sort of discussions and sort of our engagements with 
some of the top institutes, Tata Memorial Center. Uh, we actually uh, received, uh, TMCs recently received approval for India's first ever human-grade clinical trial on studying the uh, the effects of cannabis from a medical perspective on breast cancer patients stage two. Uh, broadly, we've also in discussions with uh, our different AIMS institutes, whether in New Delhi or other parts of India, focused on neurology, epilepsy, and neuropathic issues, where um, gradually we're looking to link this to a lot of the products we uh, roll out and launch from uh, our back end to be able to plug into clinical studies, observation studies, help the medical practitioners and researchers generate data that would help them feel comfortable with the concept of cannabis as medical and therapeutic uses, which is the end goal uh, of such an activity. Uh, I think that's on the medical side. When you speak about synthetic plastics, bioplastics, that is a huge, huge scope for this. What we realized is lacking today is when India is growing a few hundred thousand hectares of standard hemp is when bioplastics uh, begin to start making sense. Till then, the cost, the price, the uh, MOQs, etc. don't actually fit the scale of the larger entrepreneurs or the mid-sized entrepreneurs who want that supply today. Um, and uh, for that, we realize growing the plant is most important. Getting the yield is most important. But when it comes to more evolved technologies like graphene, um, very frankly, Hush, and in an amusing, uh, a sort of very amusing way, graphene, uh, because I've been leading our endeavors. In fact, we also have a patent pending uh, on this entire process is a whole different wormhole altogether. We realized um, the versatility of it as a material could be used. And when we began making the material, our core focus was to see if it could be used as a powder electrode material, how you have anodes, cathodes, electrodes within a conventional battery operating system. If this could be used in a device called an ultra capacitor, which mm -hmm. is basically, and I'm sure you may have come across ultra, ultra caps and super caps uh, mm -hmm. as well is basically um, the large energy thrust you need in a short volume of time uh, to be able to uh, have a greater energy outflow. So I think the best example would be uh, the regenerative braking uh, you see in Formula 1. When they take a speed turn, they need to slow down and speed up at a, you know, at a very quick pace. So batteries, systems get overloaded in such a process. So you need a device to be able to handle that fluctuation of energy. That's what Ultra and Supercap does. Uh, just basic, simple layman understanding. The electrode material that powers that is a hypothesis of where hemp-based graphene can be used. A researcher in the North America had done a similar kind of hypothesis and been successful. And we aim to replicate that here. But during the process, we realized it's not just in this device. We've actually gotten interest from some of the largest companies in the world. We've sent a sample material to Apple, to Google, to Tesla, to Samsung, all of them looking at a variety of uses, whether it's glasses, ceramics, batteries, uh, PCBs, microcircuits, uh, you know, nanoelectrochemistry, the plethora of application of new age materials like this. We realized sitting as entrepreneurs, we may not be able to know. But the most we can do is give it to the right people to figure out where it can be used. Uh, there is immense potential in this domain um, as well. And especially in terms of taking um, hemp-based fiber from a low value form where it may be valued at only about 100, 150 rupees per kilo in sort of its real biomass form, right up to um, a product that sells for a few hundred dollars or a few dollars a gram someday in the near future. Um, in that sense, bioplastics, graphene, higher innovations related to these printable circuit boards, um, PCBs and sort of other, um, I would say, electronic components that can be devised using sort of natural fibers like hemp-based fiber are innovations that are in skunk works, I would like to say, 
uh, I would say it's a couple of a few years away from really kind of seeing scale and understanding the meritocracy from a product quality and value perspective. But it is in process. All of this is in the research horizon. We're not expecting and we're not um, uh, applying any kind of extra pressure to see results in a quick and if, uh, you know extremely quick time fashion. We're giving ourselves the next say maybe uh, two to four years to really interpret and take forward the research on our medical perspectives uh, and the next three to five years to really see what is the next frontier of innovation, whether it's graphene or bioplastics, whether it's hemp-building materials or maybe some other currently unidentified use, high-value use of hemp. Uh, that would play into the larger vision of Pohiko in the future. And uh, what about uh, the building material, hempcrete? Right. So um, when we first began our journey, that was one of the first kind of research areas we looked at. We actually designed India's first hempcrete blocks. And I'm actually very happy to say some young entrepreneurs uh, have actually set up hempcrete and agrocrete companies in India. There's a great entrepreneur of Tendobas. I'd like to give a, a brief, uh, you know, kind of uh, mention to him also. His name is Tarun Jami from Green Jams Infrastructure. India's largest, uh, actually first hemp-based agrocrete, um, uh, first agrocrete and hempcrete-based enterprise in India, where Tarun, I believe, is doing his research at the Central Building Research Institute, where we partner together to supply him the material and help enable entrepreneurs like him to really make a difference. And even from a technical point of view, we realized over time, Hempcrete is extremely valuable as a uh, sort of an infill material where uh, its sequestration property of actually capturing carbon dioxide ensures that over time it captures about 110 kilograms per cubic meter, give or take. I don't know the exact calculation, but that essentially means that if you build a house where the outside material, say for example, you live in a temperate part of North India, uh, you realize that your house starts cracking when you use conventional material. Because there's a lot of carbon dioxide that is being exposed to from external conditions because of trees and nature, ecology, etc. Now, what do you do? In this situation, by using hemcrete, it helps kind of capture CO2 to carbonate the lime used from the shive or the, the binder to become more strong structurally over time. Okay. And, and how about your uh, association with Fuhani on the low-cost sanitary napkins? Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. No, I think uh, Suhani is a gem of an entrepreneur. Uh, really? In fact, I think maybe a year ago, uh, we just posited a hypothesis that can we make a prototype of a hemp-based sanitary napkin? Right. We, we I called up Suhani on a whim. And I said, hey, you know, I know, I know you're busy. I'm sorry, but can we do it? And I, uh, this is why I really value entrepreneurs like Suhani in this day and age and why they're real inspiration to so many entrepreneurs. Because how, how, it wasn't why and how and what. It's why not and when can you get me the material? And you know, that really sent a message. And in 10 days time, we actually had a first prototype of India's, uh, I would say one of India's first prototype of hemp-based sanitary napkins and hemp-based sanitary pads. Uh, it's something that was sort of just initially done between two entrepreneurs to see whether we could do it or not. Um, and in fact, there's a lot of interest from a few state governments, local state governments as well. Uh, to see whether this could be plugged into a larger women's social enterprise mission. But we realize the cost dynamics of it don't fit today. Where today, you know, there's so much amazing work where even Sohani and Saral are making, you know, cost-effective value-added sanitary napkins uh, at a very low-cost scale. But uh, we realize that if we are able to come together over the next, say, a uh, couple of years and really kind of plug in and synergize the ideas, maybe we could take it to a small scale where it could actually make a significant difference. The way we see ourselves is we would rather enable entrepreneurs uh, like Sohani and be able to work as partners together uh, where we act as material suppliers and give you know, market and research and foresight intelligence and help the entrepreneur be enabled in a much larger way to carry a greater 
uh, image uh, towards a more sustainable uh, future as well. Fantastic. At the beginning of the conversation today, I called you in my own words as Saptarishis. I don't know if you have been called that before or, but you must, <laughs> you must have known this word. Have you been called that before, by the way? Uh, that's a great question. Thanks, Ash. Uh, in fact, uh, we have uh, by okay. one of our seed investors who is a dear school friend of uh, mine, in fact, and okay. his fa family office, uh, who called us a Saptarishis for a while. But, um, uh, and in fact, uh, I think it would be great to share. In fact, he, he used to take the time uh, with our investors and you know, this is how we work in the system where we used to sit and learn a lot more from these systems. And we actually learned about the concept etymology of, uh, of Saptarishi and uh, of the Saptarishis and essentially where um, their brilliance kind of really proved of value. And a lot of us, I would say subconsciously have tried to mold ourselves, a our profile and character around those kind of values of goodness as well. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you know this, but what I have heard is that, you know, ages, ages ago, when, when Shiva was meditating and he was so engrossed in his meditation that these seven men were drawn to him and they just sat down looking at him. And when Shiva opened his eyes after decades and decades came out of his meditation, he saw that, you know, there's no one else but these seven men who are sitting there and he delegated these seven people to, you know, he gave them the practices and the techniques and he delegated these seven people to take yoga to different parts of the world. So I think there is some kind of connection, this Shiva, cannabis, hemp, yoga, what you guys are doing. You know, in fact, can I, um, there's actually an interesting fact I just remembered. In the 60s and 70s in Israel, there was a scientist called Dr. Raphael Makulam. He uh -huh. was the first person to discover what cannabinoids are, what CBD is, what THC is, etc. He's one of the first people to actually do this. Now, during the process, he realized in the in inside human bodies, we have something called an endocannabinoid system, an ECS. It is a neurotransmitter of two receptors, a CB1 receptor and a CB2 receptor, which act as agonists or antagonists. Now, during the process, he realized one of essentially a fatty acid neurotransmitter, um, a fatty acid neurotransmitter within the CB1 and CB2 receptors. And I think you'll be very appreciative of what he decided to name it. He decided to name it Anandamide after oh. the Sanskrit term Anand for bliss. Right, right. <laughs> so Jahan, the decision for the seven of you to go from college and uh, work, work in the real world and come back and then you all came back and met in the coffee shop and you stuck together. You were together in college, you parted for an year or two, I guess, and then you came back to start Boheko. Now, what is friendship to all of you? What are the fundamentals of friendship? And I ask this because, you know, it's easy for a single guy to be an entrepreneur, go all out, do it, maybe two of them. But I think this is a very unique story. What I'm, what I'm seeing with you is seven of you, friends through college, and you have come back together to start and you are doing it very, very well. What are the fundamentals? How does this keep going on? Um, you know, that's a, that's a great question, Hush. Um, I think, um, you know, I think it comes down to, there are many ways I could kind of define this, but I think I'd like to define this in three, three words, transparency, honesty, and empathy. 
which I think are the backbones of building a very strong relationship, whether it would be on the personal or even on the professional front, whether it's friends, whether it's colleagues, etc. Being able to create a platform where people don't feel apprehensive to share what their views are, what their heart feels, what their mind feels, where they're conflicted, where they're um, a safe space where people don't feel judgment. Uh, people understand that um, within our founder group that people have different intellectual value and different prowess in different domains. And it's the sum of a whole that makes a difference, not pieces in isolation. I think Elon Musk defined it best. Uh, he said a couple of years ago and really stuck with us that there's no such thing as a startup or as an enterprise organization. It's just a group of people working towards a common goal. And that's what we saw uh, us, uh, towards us. That even though there might be minute differences, differences of opinions, our common goal continues and continues and continues to remain the same. To build this legacy for hemp and cannabis, where it allows us in those moments of reflection or you know the difficult moments of having a difficult conversation within our founder groups, uh, to be able to point at the larger vision, point at the fact that we're still aligned on this, and be able to, uh, I would say. Uh, I, uh, uh, it is uh, the kind of uh, uh, deviations from the path that we're looking for or kind of uh, put them out of our, our scope of mind. Um, the, re the best way we realize to do this is sometimes it's important to be able to extend empathy even when one can't empathize. That is very important to be able to create a bridge by which someone can build that emotional connection. Uh, to a person's way of thinking because that impacts how they make a decision whether positive or negative how they wake up every single day um, being able to be honest with the person and telling them this won't work this will work um, we need this done now we we don't need this done now being able to be clear and concise uh, clear with each other was so important and I think you know the most important thing I like to point point towards is in the last seven and a half years we've had many arguments heated discussions debates etc and that makes me happy because if we did not do that, I would be much more worried today that people are hide, hiding what they're truly feeling and that maybe we aren't all aligned. But because we get in, we are so vociferous with our feelings, our emotion and passion, and we've encouraged each other to be so. We realize we create a very, uh, a platform where sometimes maybe meetings may run a little longer uh, so that people get a real view to express themselves. But that little longer is worth it in the long run to understand how someone feels factor that into your decision, be able to adapt that suits everyone's best interest. So it is transparency, honesty, and empathy. Which yes. Helps you be objective at work. Absolutely right. Uh, I had read this somewhere and actually I, I even practiced it uh, earlier. And, and this person had to define a good culture as a combination of being able to care personally and challenge directly at the same time. Absolutely right. And I think, you know, the, the transparency, honesty and empathy elements which you told exactly are doing that while they are giving out all the signals of caring for personally, but they are not hiding back on challenging directly. Absolutely. In fact, you know, I think I'd like to add one more word to this is empowerment. Sometimes it's important to empower people to make decisions because without a decision, you never know whether it's right or wrong. The way we view things at our level is if it's right, it's a success. If it's wrong, it's a lesson. And uh, that is the way we've always viewed it where all of us come from different domains, occupy different functional areas in the company where we have different expertise. Sometimes we may have a difference of opinion of how somebody deals with a certain issue or tackles a certain kind of business decision. But it's important in those moments to step back and be able to 
step back uh, uh, from being too emotionally vested and allow your fellow founders and your fellow friends to be empowered to make a decision whether they succeed or fail is irrelevant the key is being able to feel like you're in control of taking a decision and being able to have that kind of um, uh, i would say kind of um, positive uh, positive feeling really trickles down to the rest of the organization where we where real firm believers in empowering individuals to go out there and be proactive on their own even within the organization where uh, the average age of our, our team i think including founders is maybe 26 years old right? where we realize it's um, extremely critical that i may not know enough about a certain area and that's why it's important to lean on each other where somebody has an expertise to let them take that decision give them your insight and if it factors in great if it doesn't factor in there is a reason behind it and i think you know that type of empowerment really has a great value within an organization and it really had you know we've learned a lot of philosophical lessons um along the way and there's one lesson you know i'd like to kind of share with you it's is a lesson i think i'd like to define as the percolation of dissent the way it works is in a co- normal corporate hierarchy you have your mds your ceos your directors etc and then you have uh, your chief executives your mid level your lower level what happens is at a senior level uh, 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 an executive may be you know rubbed the wrong way because of some personal thing or professional thing he lays out that dissent and lashes out at his personnel in return that personnel carries a little bit of that pocket with him and lashes out to the next guy within the hierarchy and that trickles all the way down and then it goes all the way back up and goes all the way back down and creates this kind of cyclic way by being able to nub dissent or by being able to restructure how dissent is represented because we live in an age where it's 30% what you say and 70% how you say it uh, and being able to tap into that 70% and restructure a criticism or restructure something that may be construed as a dissent or some kind of harsh wording into something more proactive makes an incremental difference in terms of how it trickles down mentally emotionally into the rest of the organization as well yes i think uh, jahan i would i would summarize that as in in two ways one is the the ability and the necessity to reframe things and secondly i think whenever there is a failure or a setback and there is a loss because of that i think what should not be lost is the lesson absolutely right you're absolutely right about that harsh the lesson is the most critical part because that is what helps you grow it, winning a competition doesn't help you know how you can win it again better but coming third helps you understand how you need to get to first and you know this is a lesson uh, all of us uh, founders and i think even from my side a lot of us are encouraged none of us were like you know airs and toppers even academically because we were encouraged not to peak too early by our parents we were told this is a long haul this is a marathon and journey if if you are not getting first consistently through your school and college through all your classes it's okay there is a bigger mission and bigger value and being able to kind of empower that in the minds of even the youngsters we work with in our organization we realize a significant value because today marks don't define anything and we live in a day and age where everyone's recognizing this and we were very fortunate you we were born in a day and age where our parents told emphasize this with us that being top of your class isn't the only thing in life there is a hundred other things that will add more value to you as a human being and that in turn will help you succeed and help you make others succeed and that really small lesson i think is a very small kind of common factor that links the web of founders and how we grew up as human beings as well this is this is such a beautiful share from you um and i think what this does to one when one is growing up 
if it doesn't interfere in any way with the building of self-esteem and it gives tremendous confidence you're absolutely right and, and in fact is, yeah yeah and no you're right and that is why the united states is where it is today that is why developed countries are where they are today because they encouraged failure yes. and that is the difference between their and society that you know that's one thing uh, we had always said about hemp and cannabis and we either do it right or we do it fast because we know we have one good shot to do it because india inherently as a culture is not a society that easily accepts failure that if you don't succeed once at one thing a lot of the hierarchy in culture and in life earlier in orthodoxy used to encourage you to look in another direction but today you're encouraged to try again till you succeed and it's an actual effort to try eight times to crack an exam or six times to run a marathon or four times to learn coding or 12 times to do a different activity and that kind of you know that mental shift and all thanks to our progressive per, uh, generation of parents and uncles and aunties who who you know really kind of softly nudged us in that direction without us knowing that you know as as clay because at another day us humans are all all just atoms gathered together we're like clay and uh, i think the best way to view us is we are the ability to mold ourselves anyway but when we're young it's the elders who help mold different parts of us and that really helps define who we can be and who we are and many people are able to kind of use that for their best and that's what we hope to do as well i am so glad this came up in our conversation <laughs> uh, jahan mr ratan tata yes tell us tell us something about this i think you know everyone is ears to hear something about him what was the interaction how did it happen what sure. did you learn with him from him um i think you know i mean that's a great question harsh um the first time we actually met with mr ratan tata and um i remember since i was a as a, a young child i'd always told my mother of course you know ambitiously without any thought process behind it that some day i i hope and i will work with mr tata and, you know of course moms and parents they laugh it off say yes dear yes dear you know of course yeah um but uh, it is about year 4 of your theory of hope we were very fortunate we were part of fellowships and circles like ink and rajiv circle which gave us access to the right kind of platforms and communities during one of these events uh, i believe it's in lower prail in mumbai uh, in a, a place earlier called blue frog popular known as blue frog Uh, they were hosting an event for uh, X Prize, the X Prize Foundation, the launch in India, and I believe Mr. Tata is an advisor to the X Prize Foundation globally with Peter Diamandis and a couple of other stalwarts uh, running, you know, helming operations there. Uh, a lot of people speak about elevator pitches, but nobody has—I've never encountered an entrepreneur who has asked story of a a, a bathroom pitch. Uh, essentially, the way it worked was. Um, i um we happened to some starters at the function and uh, midway through the function i needed to go to the washroom um i of course went and i i looked back and i saw mr start on the other side and naturally my mind is blown but something in in me said look this is the opportunity to speak to him it's now or never so i washed my hands waited for him to wash his hands introduce myself of course introduced the fact i'm a parsi working in agriculture told him about hemp and of course how worldly and wise he is he immediately knew what hemp and cannabis was how its potential was and he said you know why don't you get in touch with me let's meet i want to know more um so for, i think it was in december of that year 2015 maybe it took us 8 months of coordination with his team and they were so kind so welcoming so wonderful and they still are so close to us till date uh, of his executive team to you know get the meeting uh, it took 8 months to get a meeting with him and a month or two before the meeting everyone told us look if if it's a new idea 
there's a very chance, very strong chance you may not get to meet Mr. Tata in your first meeting. Because if he invests in ideas and all, it's Mr. Venkat, uh, who, uh, who is currently with RIL and formerly with Tata and was very close to Mr. Tata, who vets things before they take it to the next level. So, of course, we went in anticipating we'd, you know, meet Mr. Venkat and the rest of the team and, you know, get into the nitty gritties of the real details, the meat of the details. Um, but when we walked into the office uh, about eight months later and we finally got the meeting, it's about three or four of us co-founders. We decided to keep the team small. Uh, we noticed Mr. Tata was sitting in his office alone. Of course, with his pet dogs, who he absolutely loved, and you know, who I believe they passed away because of old days in the last couple of years. But um, he was just sitting there alone, reading, you know, his work, going through his work information, and he called us into the media, and we were blown away. We really didn't expect this. We expected half an hour of his time. We sat with him for almost three hours, taking oh him through, God. and just three of us and Mr. Tata. That's it. No disturbance. No interruptions, uh, sort of a one, uh, as Mr. Tata likes to groom youngsters to help him out, one or two youngsters to, you know, kind of guide and navigate through different types of information. But he was taken. He said, what help do you need from me? And how can I be part of this? We realized, of course, him investing was, uh, you know, something we really wanted. We wanted him as a mentor to help guide the larger vision because he saw the story that in 50 years from now, hemp textiles can replace cotton textiles completely. Make, because cotton is not even India's crop, hemp is. Uh, hemp seed oil can be the next oil seed crop. Hemp medicines can be the next cancer-based therapy. There's so much room for potential. And in fact, he has a wonderful sense of humor. In fact, one of the first meetings we had with him, we give him some hemp seeds. And of course, hemp seeds are healthy. There's no narcotic value, etc. But just to pull our leg, he's like, will I get high if I eat these? I said, no, of course you won't. But uh, during the meeting, he's like, oh, I think I'm feeling high. And he starts joking with us about this. And it showed us that he was, he's such a wonderful, warm gentleman that he takes the effort to break the ice with youngsters, to be able to create a bridge of communication and of wisdom where we can sit listening to him for hours, tell us about his experiences of learning. And in fact, we were surprised that when he walked into him and he ran him through what's happening with hemp and cannabis in China, he knew everything already about it. He was already kind of plugged in. He was just waiting for the right opportunity to have this conversation with the right set of people. Uh, So we ran him through our plans, our mission, our greater goal, or being able to work on the health and you know the wellness side, and uh, he was a great believer. In fact, um, um, at that point, we were very fortunate. The Tata Trust also empowered us and backed us uh, uh, in many ways to conduct a lot of our research programs, which are still on today. Um, for which we anticipate the results could be an agriculture game changer for the country. But with Mr. Tata, we still, uh, um, you know, we still converse. We have conversations every quarter and every six months. Unfortunately, last six months have been a bit busy because of, uh, you know, how the world situation has been. But he's always guiding us in the right direction, whether it's in terms of products, larger strategy, the market, the vision. Um, to such an extent, he's proactive uh, enough that he, till today for his meetings, he wears a hem shirt for many meetings and many people have told us this uh, and that he eats our hemp seeds and hemp foods as part of his nutritional diet and you know, over time we built a very good strong rapport with a, a, you know, the young dynamic uh, team that he's actually built um, as well and I think you know Shantanu Naidu who's, who's his deputy general manager has a very inspiring story himself and a you know, wonderful youngster and, and we really see that um, when we sat with Mr. Tata, we realized it's a twinkle in his eyes. Uh, when he understands something, you can see he's processing it and being able to compute something that most normal, ordinary human beings would not be able to compute within a matter of seconds. A story that would take me hours to tell is something Mr. Tata understands in less than 15 seconds and understands where the next 50 years of that story are going to be. And I think that is really the mark of a gentleman who, from our childhood, 
and we, we don't say this only retrospectively but literally from our childhood because we have two parsis out of seven of us he has been the role model and aspiration to our our culture our society our upbringing and he's somebody uh, i would say a mentor we hold in the highest regard and in fact the the tata vision of how to build a structure to help people for the larger cause and build a legacy is something that we consider the highest uh, realms of emulatability as well so it's really wonderful to hear this and i also want to say over here like in your childhood you spoke about uh, with your mom about meeting mr tata or working with him i'm just trying to go to the power of conviction how conviction materializes if that conviction is there uh, and it's it's largely intangible but it does convert into tangible results important to have that conviction and important is to keep having that dialogue with yourself absolutely i think you know there's a common belief in in my household a lot of our households that the moment you say something you put it out in the universe then it's the universe's role to decide when how or whether it's part of your story jahan are there any links between ayurveda and hemp anything you know of yes harsh massively um in fact um, if you happen to go through some of the ancient ayurvedic formularies and medical texts um bhang or cannabis leaf uh, is listed as one of the five to six major herbs used in formulations in ayurveda uh, ranging from a wide variety of uh, areas in fact uh, during our research we realized there are almost 100 plus formulations that either use bhang that's the leaf or the bhij that is the seed in different uh, uh, different kind of classical ayurvedic and proprietary ayurvedic formulations mm-hmm. uh, the likes of uh, uh, you have different types of churnas different types of gulikas that you use uh, for things like digestive and gastrointestinal issues for managing pain managing mood obesity and diabetes which is unbelievably defined in ancient ayurvedic medical terms within our formularies a wide range of different indication areas with about 100 plus different formulations but because of you know the stigma attached to bhang and cannabis since the 60s and 70s the amount of it being actually used in ayurvedic and ayurvedic formulations hasn't picked up the modern mainstream which is something that we've really taken as a core mission uh to be one of the first licensed companies to have ayurvedic formulations focused around cbd and thc taken from the bhang to help patients with uh, uh neuropathy or uh, cancer hiv tuberculosis arthritis pain the menstrual cramps um uh, muscle recovery and skin recovery in a wide range of indication areas because the the ancient texts say but it hasn't made its way into modern day lexicon and terminology yet in a much more i would say considerable fashion uh, a lot of ayurvedic practitioners in fact some of the largest ayurvedic companies have products like uh, munakka bhang munakka which uh, you know in tier 2 tier 3 parts of uttar pradesh bihar uttarakhand is a very common digestive post meal um, so the phenomenon is there the consumption is there in fact i think um, uh, in within the even within the ayurvedic space there's been a lot of recent research work done by the central councils of ayurveda some of the top ayurvedic researchers actually studying bhang's effect on cancer patients and for chronic pain um so i i guess you know it's very important for us uh, us within india to understand that our history is very very intrinsically tied to this plant today we speak of ashwagandha or guduchi or you know wide variety of of uh, herbs that are for, are for immunity basis but uh, i think it's also important to remember that within the same scriptures are captured how even during the last few thousand years a bhang's leaf 
became such an important part of remedy solutions for pain, digestion, intestinal disorders, uh, uh, psychosomatic disorders, uh, even before modern day pharmaceutical industry uh, really kind of took the, took the mantle and ran with uh, you know, a greater evolution of new generation drugs to these indication areas. So uh, within Ayurveda, India still has a history. And I think with the modern scientific interpretation and science meeting Ayurveda is exactly the cusp at which Bohiko is currently operating as well. So, Jahan, you mentioned that, uh, you know, in the modern day, this has not come out and uh, it's, it's not well known. And I just want to maybe a little bit philosophically, Ayurveda and yoga and, and all uh, these, uh, the elements which they contain, they are really eternal. And, and if we look at it, you know, somewhere, I think it is our mistake and the society's mistake to call it history and to call it modern. What is eternal is not history and it's not modern. It's eternal. Right. Absolutely. And, yeah. And I think, I think that's a great disservice. Our, our uh, I don't know, our education or the way we have categorized everything have, uh, have done. And, and it's great that, you know, people like you and uh, entrepreneurs like you are, uh, reversing this trend now. Absolutely. We also realize it's important to see, I'll, I'll let me put the numbers into perspective. Mm-hmm. We live in a country where Ayurvedic practitioners outnumber modern day practitioners 6.5 to 7 is to 1. So that means most of India is getting their advice, medical advice from Ayurvedic practitioners. In, in a homeopathy, Ayurveda, Siddha, Unani, whichever version of ancient medicine. Most of India, this tier 2, uh, in certain parts of tier 1 and onwards. What we realized is, unfortunately, a lot of malignment has come to the name because certain types of Ayurvedic and homeopathic formulations may not have the same efficacy. But we realized putting a, a substance like Bhang, which is categorized as an E1 substance within Ayurveda and within Ayurvedic laws, that means it has certain toxic potential and that's why it needs to be combined with other ingredients to a cut the toxic potential but to be amplifies therapeutic potential in combination uh, being able to help ayurvedic practitioners uh, be aware about the science of cannabis why it's working how it works being able to build a system with them by which their credibility is enhanced through their patient and user communities to say this doctor knows what he's talking about with a much more scientifically proven and licensed product as compared to how Ayurveda and homeopathy ki goli jo chalti hai raste pe, change that conversation and narrative and have that trickle down into the mainstream. So then eventually people are consuming capsules and uh, tablets of bhang extract with a certain uh, amount of hemp seed oil and guduchi or whatever other ingredient combination, knowing mm. the Ayurvedic practitioner knows what he's talking about. That if you have two of these with your body and with your condition, there will be some kind of efficacy. And when that efficacy comes in naturally through a plant, that has such potential, the the patient and user base builds. Credibility builds not just for the doctor, but for the plant and the formulation itself. What dazzles me in all this uh, is also the fact, Jahan, that you are a commerce graduate and you flow about these things in such a natural manner, like a river is flowing. <laughs> it's, it's completely uh, amazing to hear you and your... Uh, and the depth which you bring to this subject. Very pleasing. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I'm humbled by your words, Hush. But uh, uh, 
a matter of fact is all grit and grind in fact uh, a lot of this we've learned uh, because i work on the product research side of yes. things i work on the doctor marketing side and yes. you know a lot of his hard lessons where experienced people will tell you on your face you don't know what they're talking about and sometimes it's important to be humble and accept that and say i don't know what i'm talking about i'm here to learn from you uh, and build that learning base uh, and very frankly i think there'd be other founders in my team who perhaps would have 10x the knowledge i may have about uh, certain amount of these subjects as right jahan what is leadership for you what are the most important traits a leader should have what are the most important traits an entrepreneur should have i think that's a great question harsh and then, you know it's something <clears throat> it's a question that's left us with a lot of soul searching over the years um what you realize is we don't have a complete picture of what true leadership is but we have small pieces of the puzzle that we found along the way uh, and i'd be happy to share some of them uh, of course uh, uh, as well uh, what we've seen is a true leader is essentially one who isn't always necessary is adaptable enough to know when it's important to lead the pack from the front lead the pack from the middle or lead the pack from behind because every single situation cannot be force fit in binary one and zero and only one type of uh, one size fits all solution works what true leadership is what we what we've come to understand is being able to hear every point of view every side of you being able to factor in every quantitative merit and demerit and then being able to take a qualitative cost based on instinct and intellect a combination of instinct and intellect to take the final decision and whichever way the decision goes and i think the most important trait we realize of uh, uh, and i i personally a lot of us personally take off uh, um being a leader is when you succeed it's important to give the credit to the team that makes it happen and when you fail it's important to share that failure with the team so that they realize it's not just a hierarchy it's not just a boss with a circle of juniors it is more than that it takes a step towards a few steps closer towards being a family where you are accepting that something didn't work because we didn't together we faltered in different ways but when you succeed you empower the the younger fledgling uh, junior ones uh, with that kind of praise and with that kind of constructive more positive mindset that really helps them grow because at the end of the day a, a leader's job um and i think you know the best example i don't i can't remember who said this but they said um the real definition of a ceo and a leader is the the woman in every single indian household she is the modern day definition of a leader and ceo and think about it from morning to night if we look about it, and i come from a, a, a single parent family as raised by a mother and uh, of course i'm happily married to my wonderful wife who's extremely independent comes from a similar stream of thought and something i've learned in real time from both of them as well it's a great lesson that the greatest learning lesson at home comes from just watching the women of the household how they take care of everything i'm sure you'll definitely be able to echo this as right from morning to night everything's taken care of meticulously a leader takes care of of um i would say holes in the ship and plugs them quietly when nobody even notices that they are there whereas the leader is the one who is also the one when the ship is coming close to shore and succeeding he shares that praise and that happiness with the rest of the family or the team and you know that is really the spirit what most more, uh, women modern uh, women in indian households represent right from 
taking care of the children, taking care of the pets, taking care of a husband, taking care of in-laws, taking care of the house, taking care of this, taking care of the uh, what, what to eat, when to eat, what schedule, how people are supposed to do it. But doing it in such a gentle, kind, compassionate, empathetic way is the true epitome of what uh, a modern day leader needs to be. And I think the best reflection and the best lesson anyone can take is just by walking out of the rooms and watching their mothers, watching their wives, watching their sisters go about their everyday in a modern day household and really learning the true qualitative lessons of leadership. I think Dr. Kalam said it best. He said, harmony in the home brings peace in the world. And yeah. I think that's exactly the kind of uh, mentality that will help reshape how people view the, uh, the future of India as well. Jahan, it's, you, you have had a splendid journey and there's so much yet to come. I think it's just the trailer which has happened so far. The film is yet to play out, but you are preparing so beautifully for it. Uh, Jahan, for young people who are in college, coming out of college, what is it that you would like to tell them to read? From your point of view, you think that no one should miss this. This is something which one must read and why? Are there any favorites? Um, that's a great question, Harsh. And uh, I mean, since I was a child, I've been a vociferous reader till today. Um, my one addiction is information. I need to read and need to know something new every single day. Um, and I think being able to tap into that urge, which is innate in every single one of us, because a lesson isn't as um, binary as we think. Being able to read something new and being able to give your, your mind a new process, uh, ability to process a new piece of information for something unfamiliar is critical. Because, you know, we live in a world where we have an intellectual safe space. We have our likes, we have our dislikes, we have our interests, we have our disinterests. But almost everything we do, what we read online or offline, what we peruse articles and information is based entirely on this kind of narrow bias. This is what we like, this is what we're comfortable with, this is what we appreciate. And that builds intellectual complacency. That is where I would encourage youngsters to be able to challenge their minds and say, I'm going to read something I used to think is boring. For example, if, if a youngster is one who's only avidly into the detective fiction novel kind of arena, which I am, by the way. Uh, and I would say um, uh, the essence of this is the finding the right kind of balance uh, and harmony between these two. Being able to balance out how much information you would receive from your conventional source that makes you comfortable, as well as making your mind and intellect a little more uncomfortable by reading about something you don't know. For example, I think, let me give you a practical example. I'm a young college kid. I'm 19 years old. I only like football. I only like cricket. I only like uh, my PS4 games. I have a very limited span of things. But if I really want to challenge myself, would I be keen and interested to go onto a website and learn about 30 facts and information uh, or interesting trivia about uh, something India has as a country that other countries don't. Or for example, uh, read about how uh, astronomers uh, have discovered sort of a new, uh, new galaxy or a sort of a new constellation of stars. Read something that would at first seem boring and see if you can pick up points of interest in it because I mean end of the day not everybody can be interested in everything but it's important to challenge your mind to be able to a learn lessons from other leaders through uh, non-fiction kind of biographies autobiographies medias lessons whether it's the positive lessons of great startups or whether it's the negative lessons of the Malias and the Modis of the world everybody has a lesson to teach us uh, I think that's number one Number two is being able to focus on learning a bit more about the gentleness and the humanity of things by learning about people's stories from history that we've never seen before. 
people have gone through horrific horrific things in their life but their stories are only now just being told you have the modern day malalas of the world you have you know formerly people who survived unfortunately you know um, they survived concentration camps who have come out with biographies autobiographies who have written stories who you know publish you know information that really helps you process and build yourself emotionally intellectually and that's one the core lesson i would say try and challenge your mind a little bit every day start with one thing it even okay if you don't like books put the book down go online go on to a huffington post go on to indian express go on to a platform go to atlantic go read an op-ed one thing that is within out of the range of your comfort familiarity and interest and start with that one brick and every day try and add a bit a bit more to the layer of bricks and by the end of a few years you see you've actually built an intellectual home of new interests pursuits passions which is exactly the counterbalance to your existing interests and existing subset of kind of areas of interest that build conventionally for youngsters and i think that separates the good from the great uh, intellectually speaking on most occasions now that that's absolutely an illuminating perspective are there any are there any reads which you would like to recommend absolutely um in fact i think uh, one read um, uh, from an autobiography from an entrepreneurial perspective i really appreciated was irrationally passionate by jason kothari uh formerly with snapdeal and free charge i mean it's a real true grit story it's not management just management sayings and techniques which are valuable but it's actually telling a story uh, and being able to impart subtle management uh, learnings and experiences through i would say a real hard grit story uh, is perhaps one recommendation uh, i would also recommend anything by yuva noel hariri uh who i believe is the futurist who's defined a roadmap of how the rest of the world is uh, will live um and um, i believe uh, another uh, another book that really kind of inspires but all be from a more lateral dimension can't remember the exact title but it's a book by i believe by ray kurzweil about the age of singularity uh really helps us understand the true potential of immortality of human beings which i think emotionally at this point at a time where mortality is such a sensitive topic is something as humans we have to be cognizant of that we are 30 years away uh, or 40 years away from some unbelievable medical breakthroughs that will help humans live much beyond even their conventional years which are anyway double the is anyway double the age of any other human and existing human civilization uh, as it is today and being able to get that kind of exponential access i believe you anything by yuva noel hariri and uh, ray kurzweil really would help give an added layer of horizon and perspective of what some of the greatest minds and thinkers of this world are truly thinking about for our future which i hope will kind of subtly direct youngsters towards a path they feel they will play on this road map towards the future wow thank you so much for that i think uh, uh, not only them i'm going to pick up some of those as well well jahan i think it was a phenomenal conversation with you today before we end what i want to tell you jahan uh, from from my learning and my side maybe is that you know what i what i see in you and what i find in you is a is an intellect which is in complete control of the mind you are a an entrepreneur who have very rational very balanced steady decision making process i i see that urge of being impulsive totally in command and in control you don't let that reign over you and i think that is such a difference which you have from a lot of 
other people. I think to have that calm, that poise, and uh, always uh, being objective and not letting the mind come in between of everything. I think that is a great trait and that is something I think a lot of people will, uh, uh, in the coming times, want to work with you, want to be interns with you and want to learn from you, Jahan. Thank you so much for your kind uh, words, Harsh. I greatly appreciate it. And, uh, uh, you know, it's been a great honor and privilege to share this conversation with you. And what I believe will be uh, a friendship between us and a spark of friendship between us for a very long time to come. And of course, you know, hope to, uh, greatly looking forward and excited to keep hearing all the podcasts of other young entrepreneurs, innovators. And, uh, you know, I must greatly, you know, give you the, uh, the uh, you know, the huge kudos to be being able to bring these stories out into the real world, be able to hear the stories from young India. That's redefining what passion means, redefining what leadership means and redefining what India is going to mean in the near future. And uh, of course, uh, again, grateful to have this platform to share our thoughts on the future of uh, hemp and cannabis in India as well. Jan, thank you very much for being with us today on the Small Big Wins podcast. And a very special thanks to my friend Kashmira Mevawala who introduced me to you. Thank you so much, Jahan, once again. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Harsh. And again, even from my side, your thanks to uh, Mr. Kashmira Mevawala, who's been a great mentor uh, and you know, guiding light uh, for us young entrepreneurs. And uh, uh, I want to express my gratitude from our side as well for connecting us with such a wonderful human being uh, in Harsh and having the opportunity to grace this platform to share our story as well. Thank you so much, Kashmira. Thank you, Jan.